Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Well, as promised, your next episode in Series 3 of Bat Chat is here, and today we're heading to the east of England. I'm Steve Rowe, a BCT trustee. If you're a returning listener, it's great to have you back once again, and if this is your first time, welcome along. Episodes are released every second Wednesday from now until the spring, and you can join the conversation online. Use the hashtag BatChat, that's all one word. As we meet each of the guests in this series, you'll hear stories from people working to make a difference in the world of bat conservation. You'll hear from people who care about individual species, people who concentrate on one particular part of bat ecology, and people who are working with bats at a landscape scale. As well as keeping up with the latest news and hearing from people in the world of bats, we hope that you'll be inspired to get involved, because bats need our help. Today we meet one of those people who is interested in one particular species, the Barbastel. Jane Harris is part of the Barbastel study group in Norfolk on the east coast of England. Back in May, whilst I was on holiday in the area, I drove down to Paston Great Barn, which is right on the coastline. Dating back to 1581, it's a huge thatched barn made of flint, brick and stone, measuring 50 metres in length and about 10 metres wide. Despite its size, driving south along the coast road, it's very easy to miss as you pass its end flint wall, and not until you glance in your rearview mirror do you get a feel for the expanse of the structure. I first got to visit Paston as a teenager when I was getting interested in bats, and whilst on a family holiday, met up with a surveyor who was undertaking regular counts of the colony, and I can still remember being taken inside this huge structure and being shown the colony of barbastels tucked away above one of the doors and staying to count them as they flew out over the site and down the dark country lanes listening to their distinctive castanet echolocation calls. 20 years later and I'm back and you join me inside the barn with Jane Harris who is describing the space we're stood in. Well we're in a medieval um, thatched barn which is I think one of the biggest in the country. It was used by the the famous Paston family in the past. And it's um, a huge barn with adjoining cart sheds that was, I think, really, it came to prominence when sheep and wool farming were important in Norfolk. And it's a brick and flint and thatch with uh, something like 20 trusses that go up different levels to the roof. So it's, it's full of timbers which have mortise joints and gaps in them right up to the roof. So it's, it's in many ways a bat heaven because for um, crevice living bats, there are lots of opportunities here. So Jane, we're here to talk about the unusualness of the site because it's used by barbastels. Um, why is it so unusual for that species? Well, barbastels are primarily regarded as a woodland species 
Um, and at the time the roost was discovered here, it was the first one known in a building. I think there may be more now, but it's certainly the most significant one at the time. And the reason it seems to be used by barbicels is the fact that it functions like a surrogate woodland with all these timbers with crevices. So within it, they can undertake their normal behaviour of roost switching yeah. without going elsewhere. Um, and that's what they do. Um, although we do find they're a little bit more faithful to some of the, the lintels um, and staying in them for a long time, which probably isn't quite the same as you would get in, in the woodland where they switch more often. But I think now they've been faithful to this um, barn since about 1996. They come back every year. The barn is obviously undisturbed because um, Natural England uh, now have it on lease and it's a, an NNR and it's it managed very carefully and the colony is monitored annually. So they're in safe hands here and there are anecdotal reports of them being around way before and the barn was taken over by Natural England. And it's quite unusual to have a building designated as a National Nature Reserve, isn't it, in its own right? That's right, yes, I think so. It was, um, it was under threat because it was, um, it's owned, I think, by Norfolk Buildings Preservation Trust, and they were hoping to convert it to a visitor centre, as they had done Waxham Barn, that isn't very far away from here. And Norfolk Back Group, John Goldsmith, you may remember, um, did some surveys, discovered the colony, and from then on it was um, quite a, a long procedure to work out what would happen, and in the end it was designated as an NNR, an SAC, and to Plessy, obviously, and the lease uh, was given to Natural England for 50 years, I think. And it, like you say, it's unusual to have barbed stars in a building because they are normally considered a woodland species, aren't That's they? That's right. I mean, what's the woodland situation in Norfolk? Because looking at the map, it's quite an right. arable area, isn't it? That's right. Well, it was always considered that this roost was unusual, not because just because it's a building, because it's a building in an arable area. And after the roost was discovered here, interest in barbastales grew in Norfolk. The Norfolk Barbastales Study Group was formed, that was 2007, and that really was partly spawned by um, Ash Murray, who was site manager here for Natural England, and Keith Zealand, who was manager of some of the big woodlands, at uh, National Trust woodlands at Felbrigg, Sheringham Park and Keith knew from the old BCT monitoring, woodland monitoring protocol that there were barbastales at Sheringham. So he and Ash formed the group and we started looking at those woodlands, initially the ones um, mainly in North Norfolk but also some privately owned in West Norfolk and we've gone on to look in South Norfolk where the interesting thing there is the woodlands are much smaller and more isolated but where they have suitable roost trees, we're almost certain to find barbastells. So we're now getting a picture throughout Norfolk of um, what barbastells need and where they will actually use the woodlands for maternity. How have you found all that out? How have you actually tracked these bats? Right. But when, when the group started, we were mainly looking at distribution using transects and building up the methodology for that. But we very soon realised that if we wanted to find out more about where the breeding colonies were, we had to radio track. So initially we had Chris Vine from CAMS Group helping us until we got trained up to uh, trap and radio track. And we've been doing that ourselves since 2012, I think. 
So we've been targeting all these woodlands. We started the National Trust ones, Sheringham Park, uh, Blickling, Felbrig, and then uh, at the Ken Hill Estate over in the west, which is an interesting one because they're now rewilding. Oh, yeah. And so we hope to go back there and see how the barbicels are doing. Um, and then uh, various other woodlands um, close to Paston because uh, we wondered whether it was an isolated colony. Were there any other Barbacel maternity roosts within sort of an interactive area? And we found one about six kilometres away to the south and the foraging ranges overlap. So that started to tell us something about potential interactions between colonies. Perhaps Paston isn't quite so isolated. And another one about 10 kilometres to the west. We've also started looking in different habitats, uh, different woodland types. Down in South Norfolk, the woodlands are slightly different, more hornbeam and ash, but there is oak amongst them. Some of them are heavily coppiced, but most of them have some non-intervention areas, and we were finding barbastels in those. So we find them in South Norfolk as well. The gaps at the moment are the broads. We don't know very much. There you've got the wet woodland, but there is some oak in some of them. Calthorpe Broad, which is another NNR, we've looked at, and there's a maternity colony there. That's down southeast of here, more towards the coast, not so far away. Um, we don't know much about West Norfolk yet. So, I mean, it sounds like you've found quite a lot of colonies across Norfolk. Do you know roughly how many you found? Oh, I think um, we, the group's found 15 uh, maternity colonies by radio tracking. And another three where we've caught post-lactating females and the roost potential of the woodlands is high. So we're pretty sure they're there as well. If you add the ones that have been found by, um, for example, the uh, Norwich Distributor Road uh, ecological surveys, the North West Link, uh, and one or two other sources, we're up to Norfolk at least 24 Barbastel maternity colonies scattered from north to south, but as I say, with a bit of a gap to the west, apart from Ken Hill, on the edge of the wash, uh, and the broads. I don't, don't know much about the broads. Thinking back to sort of 30 years ago, when we didn't know much about barbastels at all, you know, it, actually it seems like the population density here in Norfolk seems pretty healthy compared to what we used to know about them, at least. It does, and there are historic records of barbacels in hibernation sites in the past we rarely see them in hibernation sites now i think probably because the winters aren't cold enough but uh it was always thought from for example frank greenway's work and so on that that barbacels would be in heavily wooded riverine landscapes so what were they doing in norfolk so that's really what the group was setting out to to look at and we find that if they've got a suitable roost woodland of which there are quite a few, they are able to feed in the associated, what I call, arable mosaic, particularly where there are a lot of good hedgerows, tall hedgerows. Hedgerows, I think, are really important. And sometimes you get tributaries or ditches with a lot of uh, woody vegetation along them. They'll use those. A bit of rough pasture mainly. Uh, but also, if their colonies are within about five kilometres of the coast particularly where there are cliffs. Cliffs are important. They will visit them. For example, from here, Paston, very often the first place they'll go to forage is the cliffs at Munsley. And if the weather is right and there are insects, and I think it's the shelter that's the important thing, they will stay there all night. But if they get there 
and maybe it's an onshore wind and there are no insects, they'll come straight back, go back down south to Backton Woods. So uh, the coast is important where the colonies are near the coast. The Felbury colony uh, forages at Cromer on the cliffs there. Further west, it's more sand dune and salt marsh. We get some visiting um, barbastels on the coast, but not, not so much as where we have cliffs. So I think it's the, it's the, the shelter that's really important. I was going to say, because if they're in a natural or more normal woodland environment, you expect them to be on the sheltered side of the woodland. So you think yeah. that's to do with the weather, do you? Yeah, the weather influences where they forage a lot. Yeah. And for listeners who have never seen a bat being tagged before, can you just describe what a radio tag looks like and how it sits on the bat? It's basically the top of the tag. It has the battery in it, the um, electronics, the workings, and then the antenna is a very, very fine antenna that's usually 15 to 20 centimetres long, depending on what you want. There are different um, weights of tag, uh, but the ones we use are usually about 0.36 or 0.45, because the guidelines are that the weight of the tag and the adhesive, which is a medical glue, mustn't be more than 5% the weight of the bat. So with barbastels, we really want them to be um, over 8 grams to take tags like that with comfortably. So um, once we've caught them, um, we clip a little bit of fur off from between the shoulder blades, put a little glue on, on where we've clipped and some on the bottom of the tag, when that goes tacky, you put the tag on and just gently firm the hair around it and leave it, put, pop the um, back, back in a bag and leave it until the glue has come firm and then warm, make sure the bat's warm and release it again. And then it's long nights after that. <laughs> and I mean, we say glue and it's, it's a special glue, isn't it? It's not like a normal, it's not like using... Sort of super glue or anything like that, is it? No, it's they're medical. There are various ones. Um, medical adhesives um, often used for um, ostomy bags, you know, that type of thing. So the tags fall off eventually. Um, sometimes they come off quite soon. And I think that can often be if a bat's been uh, worming its way into a crevice, or sometimes they stay on longer than that. But and how long? How long does the battery last usually on these things? That depends on how the tag is set up the um, number of beats per second the length of the pulse uh, we go for about two weeks you can get longer but then the pulse rate will be slow so it depends what you want if you want to track a moving bat you don't want the pulse gap too wide particularly barber circles they move so fast you say they move fast you, you know what sort of foraging area how, how many kilometers from the roost will they forage well, the core sustenance zone is six kilometres radius from the roost, and we found that that's about right. But bear in mind, we're only tracking either pregnant, in early pregnancy females, or post-lactating ones. So they, they have an affinity to the maternity roost. They're probably not going as far as the males would go, for instance. So we find they go, on average, about five kilometres, certainly from Paston. We haven't had any go any further than that, but... You know, we only um, track a certain you know, small percentage. But um, I know in the past, males have been recorded by the people going 15, 20 kilometres. And is it just barbastels you've got here in the barn, or are there other bat species here? No, there, there is a significant natris roost as well, um, mainly in all the mortise joints. There's many mortise joints, and they 
They arrive earlier than the barbastels, so they should come any time now because they give birth a bit earlier. Um, and all the lining papers down under each of the trusses help me to know where they are. And then I can use the cameras to try and get a count uh, of how many bats there are. So, I mean, Jane's just said lining papers, so there yes. are what looks like wall, white wallpaper rolled out underneath each of these, these trusses right. and weighted right. down. And the one that we're stood next to has got a scattering of Natura's back yes. droppings on. looks like the first visit oh. of the year. Yes, and that's in truss T5. So all the trusses are numbered, so we know which ones. So they should, the numbers should start to build up soon. No sign of the barbastels yet, but I would expect they will be back end of May, beginning of June. And scattered around as well, there's a number of what look like security cameras. They are. They're, the roost here is monitored by um, different cameras in the past, but things have improved. And what we're using now are basically secure, infrared security cameras, which don't give that um, good a quality uh, video, but they're really flexible in that you can set them up to record because um, they're linked to a recorder whenever you like. Um, you don't have to come in and keep disturbing the roost. And they are linked to uh, a recorder with a monitor in the barn next door. So the cables feed through and you can see what's happening from that. So I, can, I get a count um, every night um, and, and I can see what's happening to the colony right through the, the maternity period. Nice. And they're on little tripods as well so you can move them around and yeah. follow them, can't you? Two fixed ones under the two big door lintels where the barb cells spell most of their time and four roving ones that I can use on the natras if I can work out where they are. <laughs> and in terms of the, the woodland roosts you found elsewhere in Norfolk, what, I mean, the trees that you find in roosts in, what sort of features are those roosts in? Are they in woodpecker holes or bits of... No, bark? loose bark. Loose bark. Loose bark. There are, they will use splits as well splits and cracks but loose bark seems to be the most predominant type and we get that a lot on um, oaks and sweet chestnut probably in that order um, those those two are really important but you get um, you can get loose bark on other species and they will use them I think the maternity colonies seem to go more for the oak and sweet chestnut when the colonies disperse then you get a bit more variety but um, those, that type of roost, the oak and sweet chestnut with lots of loose bark, is what we have um, in the colonies north of Norwich, where the northwest link is um, supposed to go, the road that joins the NDR with the A47. Um, and there are so many wonderful roost trees there. Um, and the work that's going on has shown that there is a, a really big uh, barbastel colony. Um, which is going to be definitely impacted by the road. So the work is going on studying that at the moment. And you say a large roost, you know, what's, what's the average size for a Barberstown maternity colony in these woodlands? Um, I th I, right, I think it varies a lot. For the, what we found in the sort of trees um, we've been looking at, sort of woodlands, is probably up to about 25. Sometimes you get them in a bark collar, round an aerial bough and then we make 20 25 if it's more of a um a bark slab which might be a bit bigger you might get up to uh 35 something like that i think the big colony in the um in these woodlands north of norwich 
is, is something like a hundred, over 100, but it's a very large tree with many potential roost, roosting places. So it's hard to answer that. Um, I think it depends what space the feature allows, probably. <laughs> nice and diplomatic. Well done. <laughs> and you touched on earlier... Um, we talked about you know a bit of interaction between the roosts. What what have you found out about the interaction between the different colonies? Is there is there definitely interaction, or are we not still not well, sure? That's interesting. I mean, we found there's some overlap between um, foraging areas of different colonies. We found that for Passon, with one um, about six kilometres to the south. We found that with uh, one at Blickling, with another one nearby. In terms of whether the bats move between them, we don't know. But another strand of our work was um, it came out of this um, question of whether Paston was isolated because it's in an arable environment. And by chance, really, um, we built up a collaboration with Dr Anne Edwards at um, John Innes Institute in Norwich. Um, and we thought it was feasible to start trying to look to see if we could get enough uh, good quality DNA from faecal samples to look at the cytochrome B um, uh, uh, on a gene on the mitochondria and see what the haplotypes were, because there was already work on those published. So that's what we've been doing, um, collecting faecal samples from colonies all over Norfolk, including Paston. That work is just about coming to fruition. Um, I think it may have some interesting results which may give an indication of the status of barbacell colonies in Norfolk, whether they are um, in good condition in terms of the genetic variability or maybe not. But that's all I can say at the moment. We we are now teamed up with um, somebody at UEA because the analysis is quite complicated, I think. So... um, watch this space for that but that was a strand of our work that came out partly because of the Lawton review and thinking about um, colonies uh, and landscapes being interconnected uh, and were they vulnerable or was there good gene flow which would help them be more resilient in the future so that that was one strand of what we do and hopefully we'll get something useful out of that. And what do you see the next steps for the project being into the future? I think we need to look at the areas we haven't looked at before. Are the broads important and also the West, West Norfolk? One of the things that um, Ash Murray particularly had tried to do is where you have so many multiple roosts within a woodland to try and do synchronous counts to get an idea of colony size and use that for monitoring in the future. So that's something we want to, to try to improve on. Um, although also in the, the, um, the woodlands north of Norwich, we are looking at ringing there as well, more long-term monitoring. So monitoring is an important aspect. The genetic work we might follow up if that looks to be um, interesting and then filling in, filling in the gaps. And also, of course, trying to influence the new land management schemes to try to improve habitat, particularly hedgerows and linking up for barbastels. So there's lots of things we... <laughs> we would like to do <laughs> so i mean a lot of work has gone on gone on in the last few years and the picture of our styles has changed quite a lot from what we used to know yeah. what sort of sense do you get for the conservation of barbastar bats in here in norfolk and the rest of england i find that hard to answer because i don't know 
if there's any work that looks on, a, on the sort of geographical scale that we've looked at. I mean, we're looking not at one colony in perhaps one woodland or two woodlands, but we're trying to get an idea of the, of the status right through the county. So I don't know how to answer that. All I will say is I think, I think they're extremely vulnerable still because of land management, because of infrastructure uh, schemes, particularly the North Western Link. I think that would be a disaster if that colony is, is um, lost or it declines. As we know already, already from the Northern Distributor Road, the first bit, that the colonies have gone from there. So I, I think that is really something that's very important to try to influence. And in terms of the future of this place, you know, this, I mean, it looks very solid, you know. Who, I mean, what sort of ongoing restoration or maintenance right. is that? Yes, there is. It's, um, that's Natural England's responsibility. It was thatched some years ago um, uh, and various bits of maintenance work are done obviously when the barber cells aren't here. It's also a hibernation site as well. So um, I did mention there were natras, but we also have pipistrels, soprano and common pipistrel, and long-eards, not breeding, but they're hidden away often. So it's, it's quite an important hibernation site. So the work is always done very sensitively. Um, any work outside, you see there's quite a lot of vegetation to keep um, clear. That's done with an electric strimmer now to keep the noise down and all that sort of thing. Uh, and the structure of the barn is, um, I have to keep the walls clear so they can monitor whether any cracks or subsidence or anything like that. So that's ongoing all the time. At the moment, I think the thatch is in good, good condition, so I don't think anything is planned. And if people want to find out more about the group and the work you're doing, have you got a website? We have got a website, uh, yes, Norfolk Barberstale Study Group. Um, and, of course, we wrote up all our work, which we were very pleased to be able to do and get it in British Island Bats because it pulled together everything uh, from 2007 up to about 2019. So um, maybe the next 10 years we'll produce something more. Great stuff. <laughs> Jane Harris, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you to Jane for meeting me on this fantastic site whilst undertaking other bat survey work that week over the border in Suffolk. And thank you to you for listening to this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you take a look at the show notes, you'll find links to a newsletter article following the history of the bats at Paston and the work of the Barberstell Study Group. You can follow the bat groups of Norfolk on their social media sites. The links are in the show notes. Now, we've got some exciting news for you. We're launching Bat Chat's first ever competition. Two of this series' future guests, children's authors Angela Mills and Emma Reynolds, have kindly donated prizes. Angela has donated a copy of Bobby the Brown on Geared Bat, signed by both Angela and Chris Packham, and Emma has donated a copy of her newly released book, Amara and the Bats. To enter the competition, to win one of these brilliant books, all you have to do is write us a review about the show, and the two winners will be picked at random at the end of this series. Not all podcast apps allow you to leave reviews, so if you're an Apple device user, leave us a review on the Apple Podcasts app, which is already installed on your device. If you're an Android user, you can leave us a review on the Podcast Addict app. And if you don't listen to the show on a mobile device, you can write your review on the Podchaser website. Instructions of how to leave your review in each of these places can be found in the show notes of this episode. 
Remember, we need to be able to contact you if you win. So when you leave your review, make sure you give us your Twitter or Instagram handle in the review. If you don't use these, drop us an email to comms at bats.org.uk with a copy of your review. We're only able to post the prizes to addresses in the United Kingdom. If you've missed any of that, it's all in the show notes of this episode. We'll be back in two weeks with one of those authors, Emma Reynolds, and I'll leave you with a taste of what's to come in that next episode. I'll see you then. Uh, I just absolutely love bats. I've always loved them since I was a kid. And I just don't think there's uh, that many books about them. There's a, there's obviously a few really good ones, but nothing compared to how many books there are about bears or rabbits or um, a lot of the popular animals. And I just felt like they were a bit of an underdog, really. And I just really wanted to show everyone how amazing they are. And in doing the research for the book, I fully came to understand you know, how vital they are to all life on Earth. I wanted to show people what microbats were like up close, the bats that they're most likely to see flying above their heads. What did you think of this episode? If you can please leave a quick comment about the show in the ratings and review section, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other listeners to discover our podcast.